Hi, everybody. We're back. New installment, Vox Tablet, the podcast of Tablet Magazine. To me, your host, Sarah Ivory. Today, a girl's best friend. Now, when I think of diamonds, I think of very pretty sparkly gems that a woman wears when she gets engaged. I bet you think the same thing. Here's somebody who doesn't think the same thing. Journalist Alicia Oltuski. For Alicia Oltuski's family, diamonds were first a means to survival just after World War II, and then they became the means to a livelihood here in America. Specifically, I'm talking about an America anchored on a stretch of West 47th Street in Manhattan. West 47th Street is the hub of an area called the Diamond District. It's where buyers and sellers go to work every day, trading and selling gemstones from all over the world. Alicia Oltuski has written a book about the diamond business and about her family's place in it. That book is called Precious Objects, and Alicia Oltuski is with us today in the studio to talk about it. Alicia, welcome to Box Tablet. It's lovely to be with you. You come from a family as you write about in the book, that's been in the diamond industry for decades. But what exactly does your father do? My father is a diamond dealer, but he focuses mainly on antiques. So he's sort of a a wholesale merchant, and most of his business is really done with, with other merchants like himself behind closed doors, not on the street level of New York City, as many of the other diamond shops are. This, though, this industry wasn't something you talked about openly growing up. Is that right? Well, my father often hid the details of his business from me simply because of safety reasons. Um, He was convinced that if I knew too much about the business that somehow I would find myself in a situation that might put me in danger. So especially in the 80s and, you know, 90s in part when traveling salesmen were less of an endangered species and, and he would carry goods around. This was something people didn't talk about because it was actually fairly dangerous. I want to get into your family history, but before we do that, I want to talk a little bit about the diamond district and the diamond trade here in New York City. Now, the hub of it is more or less around 47th Street and surrounding blocks. And I just would love it if you could, for the uninitiated, describe for us what it's like there on any given day when you walk in. Well, the Diamond District is a world unto itself. It's essentially this anachronistic enclave in the middle of New York City to which few gain access. What I mean by that is anyone on the street can see the diamonds. They can see the four columns or stanchions uh, with diamond-shaped lights at their tops that demarcate 47th Street between 5th and 6th Avenues, the epicenter of, of the Diamond District. But what goes on in the upper offices and in the Diamond Dealers Club is pretty much veiled from the public. So what goes on behind the scenes? What happens there in the upper floors that I can't get access to? The upper floors, if if you had a very quick view of them, would look quite unremarkable. Usually parcel papers, these these small folded papers, often they're blue and sort of a tissue-like substance. They're being passed back and forth between the hands of dealers. And let's say in the Diamond Dealers Club, my grandfather will walk into the main trading hall, which is, again, an unremarkable-looking room, uh, usually gray, so that diamonds that are dropped can be identified. Patterns would sort of shroud them. And uh, men walk around, usually they're men, some women as well, basically passing diamonds back and forth and, you know, taking a look at them to see if, if it's something that they'd be interested in buying or if someone they know would be interested in buying the merchandise. 
Um, and because diamonds are so small, if you looked at it from a distance, it would look as though these people are playing cards or passing secret messages to one another. And oftentimes they actually are playing cards. Uh, during the recession, when I would visit the club, I noticed that uh, cards and checkers and sometimes chess seem to be much more frequent activities than diamond trading because uh, the trade did really experience a slowdown. What is the Diamond Dealers Club for everyone who doesn't know? The Diamond Dealers Club is basically a trading bourse. Uh, it's sort of the main market in New York City, and it's part of a family of trading bourses. There are clubs in Antwerp, in Tel Aviv, and all over the world, really. And uh, it's it's sort of a, a family in a way. It's it's where everyone goes to trade diamonds. A lot of dealers don't have offices of their own. And so the Diamond Dealers Club is like a market for them to come and trade. A lot of brokers visit it and roam the halls seeking deals. So do they have to rent a desk or a chair at a desk or something? Members of the Diamond Dealers Club pay an annual membership fee. And this covers all sorts of things. It it gains you entry into the club. Um, and it's a very rigorous process because, as you might know, uh, trust is really the most important component of, of the diamond trade. Everything functions on trust because so many of these very expensive stones are traded on credit. And so people go through background checks. They need people to vouch for them. Uh, before they're admitted. And oftentimes their picture will hang on the bulletin board so that if anyone has any objections to their, um, I guess, membership, that they can voice that. Yeah, I was actually really floored in reading your book about how much this industry seems to uh, move on trust and on an honor system that you, you'll pay, that you will eventually pay up. Yeah, it's it's a very kind of archaic business model, and yet it survived all of these years. A lot of it, for that reason, um, sort of bears a resemblance to certain other insular communities. The Diamond District in itself is sort of an insular family of, uh, you know, from a mercantile perspective. I was struck in reading your book by the dominance of Jews in the diamond industry. And I wondered, how did it come to be such a Jewish trade? The, the dominance of Jews in the diamond industry, I think, has a two-part reason. Um, and both of those parts have to do with the almost ubiquitous harassment of Jews throughout history, particularly in the Middle Ages. During the medieval time, many of the guilds that formed the bedrock of commerce uh, during that time period were closed to Jews. Jews were not allowed to become members. And the jewelry guild was an exception to this rule. That's just coincidence. Um, but diamonds also happened to be particularly suited to the Jewish lifestyle during that time period because, and this is changing, but diamonds used to be essentially the densest form of wealth. And so it was possible for Jews to literally pack up their entire inventory when they needed to flee a place that became unfriendly to them or that literally kicked them out. Beyond, though, the prevalence of Jews in the diamond industry, I was also very much struck by how it was specifically Orthodox Jews, or it seems to be specifically Orthodox Jews. And I wonder if you can offer any insight as to why Orthodox Jews rather than conservative Jews or reformed Jews would go into uh, jewelry dealing as a, as a profession. I'm always very interested by the way in which it seems to me, at least, that the same things that make for good diamond dealing communities also tend to make for good Orthodox or ultra-Orthodox Jewish communities. Um, it's a very insular world, and everyone knows each other. And as I mentioned before, 
trust is is really such an important component of the trade. And so the same things that make for, let's say, a good match in marriage also make for a good match in dealers in, in trading stones. You know, person A needs to know person B and may even need to know his family. The diamond uh, trade is very generational and, and familial based. And so, uh, you know, I, I always think that those those things tend to correspond. There's also um, historically, while the gem trade happened to be integrated into Jewish tradition, Jewish tradition also started to influence the diamond industry. Rabbis, for example, became almost administrators, business administrators, so that if someone reneged on a deal and ran off to another city, Jews were always very much in contact with one another. And so, you know, Rabbi A could write to Rabbi B or send him a message and uh, together they could try to enforce a deal. You also mention in the book how even various Jewish phrases, Hebrew phrases, mazel, uh, is a word that's used to kind of connote the deal is sealed across the board. I mean, Jews and non-Jews alike use that phrase. That's right. I've, I've heard many non-Jews say mazal when a deal is sealed. So so mazal, short for mazal ubracha, or in Yiddish, mazal ubracha, was um, really what, what has been binding diamond deals for, for quite some time now. It was actually said that the Rambam uh, instructed his gem-dealing brother to say this when he closed deals. So that goes back reportedly quite some time. The Rambam being Maimonides, of course, for people who may not sure. know that. I do want to just press you a little bit further about this question of, of the Orthodox contingent in the diamond industry rather than uh, Jewish groups of other denominations. I, I, I'm trying to grapple with why why would non-Orthodox Jews not also gravitate to what can be quite a lucrative and uh, gratifying profession, I imagine? There are actually many non-Orthodox Jews in, in the profession as well. I think that uh, the Diamond District in New York in particular uh, tends to provide a really comfortable working environment for Orthodox or ultra-Orthodox Jews the Diamond District essentially shuts down on Jewish holidays. I spoke to a non-Jew once who was unaware of this fact in the beginning of his career, and um, I think he almost missed out on a very important deal because of it. But um, because of the um, because of the way that the Diamond District functions, it really does pose a very suitable work environment. So while there are many Jews of, of all different denominations working there, I do find that a lot of ultra-Orthodox Jews also gravitate to the vocation simply because um, it's, uh, it's convenient in a way. Um, but there is also the face of 47th Street really is changing its demographic. And uh, I've spoken to a lot of non-Jews, people from different countries who've said that they felt very welcome in this neighborhood because it's trust is not really, when I say a family, it's sort of an economic family, not an ethnic family. And so if you have proven yourself as a trustworthy person, as someone who repays credit and makes good on on his or her deals, then you will be accepted into that family. It does take a very, very long time because of the high stakes involved, but... uh, I would say that that the family is really uh, commercial rather than, you know, racial. Let's get back to your family for a moment. How did they get involved in the diamond business in the first place? Happenstance. My grandfather bought his first diamond in a DP camp in post-war Germany, not because he hoped to become a diamond merchant or even because he thought diamonds were beautiful, but simply because a man he stumbled upon happened to be selling these diamonds. 
he had only seen one diamond in his life, and it was a diamond that was used to cut windows in his hometown. He'd never held a diamond. He'd never touched a gemstone. But this man, on this particular day, was selling diamonds. And so he held a piece of rough diamond, which is an unpolished diamond, in his hand. He turned it around, and he had a hunch that this might be worth something. And so he asked to borrow the diamond, and... This always struck me as very remarkable that this man who was not involved in any kind of diamond dealing community and had no idea who my grandfather was would trust him to pay for this stone and and simply give it to him on credit. But what I began to realize the more that I spoke to my grandfather was that during the war, diamonds were essentially useless. Food was much more valuable. So my grandfather took this diamond to a nearby cutting town called Idar Oberstein and had this diamond cut and polished, and he was able to sell it. And then he paid back this man uh, with marmalade, honey, and condensed milk. <laughs> and after that, that, that was his initiation into the diamond trade, essentially. And then he just went from there. He went from there. He he did other things along the way, but um, over the next few years, after he had moved to America and then moved back to Germany, he really immersed himself in the diamond and jewelry trade. And my father, uh, who was growing up with all of this... Um, basically became a, a merchant also by proxy. He would help my father, my grandfather sort diamonds. He would look at the bounty that he'd brought back from business trips, and he became fascinated with it. And after he graduated from high school, he went immediately to train in a diamond cutting factory from the bottom up, so to speak. To the extent that diamonds are part of pop culture, they hold two polar opposite positions. On the one hand, We do think of them as this romantic object. Diamonds are forever, they're girl's best friend, all that stuff. On the other hand, they've been tainted by their association in recent years with conflict and atrocities in Western Africa. We hear about blood diamonds or conflict diamonds, and those are stones that were extracted in a war zone and used to finance violence in places like the Republic of Congo and Sierra Leone. Alicia, how do you think about diamonds? I think about diamonds as a material upon which humans have laid a whole lot of symbolism. I think one of the most interesting things about the diamond is that it's actually an incredibly useful material, and yet we use it for a very unuseful um, purpose, which is to hang around our necks or to dangle from our earlobes or to wrap around our fingers. And the diamond's uh, essential value is entirely sentimental, the way we use it. And so if this sentiment is tainted by the knowledge that it helped fund a war, then that does something very interesting. It literally reduces the diamond's value. And in the 1990s, activists and experts basically alerted the world that the provenance of these gemstones that we all so adored was not as flawless as the diamonds themselves. On the other hand, there's uh, a group of people working towards fair trade diamonds. And so diamonds are, are not only versatile, but they can be used literally for good or evil. Um, and I, I think there are very few materials uh, today that can be so easily transformed in in their relevance uh, politically, historically, and uh, societally. And so diamonds literally can fund either the burgeoning of a small neighborhood in Sierra Leone or the destruction of, of many people in their lives. 
Now, as we mentioned at the start of the interview, your father was always somewhat discreet about what he did for a living so as to not put you and other people in danger. But here you've gone, you've written a whole book about your father and about his job and about his associates. What did you learn about your father that you hadn't known? I had not known how many times he'd been in danger, frankly. I think he shielded me from many of these experiences of his. He had been chased in a car. He had been um, almost robbed in, in some situations. He had been followed. And I didn't know that he had been he had found himself in in such perilous situations so many times in his life. I didn't I never thought of the diamond industry as an adventurous industry. And I also never thought about my father as an adventurous man. And I think a lot of that changed as I started to talk with him about uh, many of these stories. Now, you yourself are relatively unadorned in terms of jewelry right now. You have a, a gold band on your finger. I assume you're married, but you're not wearing any diamonds. Yes, I get that question a lot. <laughs> I feel like I'm a really bad advertisement. Um, I... I've always been incredibly fascinated by the gemstone and its history and most of all the people who deal with it. But I never found myself wearing much jewelry. And I think part of that is that while I was growing up, my father, who is very overprotective, um, was worried about me wearing jewelry on the street. He'd heard that someone had pulled uh, earrings out of a woman's earlobe on the street. And um, so I, I never wore very much jewelry growing up. And I've also just never developed um, a habit of, of wearing it subsequently, I guess. Alicia Olchuski, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure talking to you. Alicia Olchuski is the author of Precious Objects, A Story of Diamonds, Family, and a Way of Life. It's out now from Scribner. Do me a favor, tell your friends about Vox Tablet. They can download podcasts at iTunes. They can listen on our website. If they are on iTunes, if you are on iTunes, I have one extra request. Please write a review of Vox Tablet on iTunes. We'd love for everyone in the iTunes world to know your feedback. So don't be bashful. Be honest. We can even take it if you're critical. But please try not to be too critical. <laughs> Vox Tablet is produced by Julie Subra, and I'm your host, Sarah Avery. Thank you so, so, so much for listening. Join us again next time.